Well, again, welcome to each of you this morning. It is good to see you. I never know who is going to be at faith on a given Sunday morning. And the congregation looks so different this morning than what it has the last couple mornings. And uh, I find that a bit, um, I'm going to say puzzling. But um, the topic that I'm going to be speaking about this morning is handling church conflict correctly. Now, I didn't know a week and a half ago when I was planning for this Sunday, I didn't know who all was going to be here. Um, so I hope this morning that you do not feel as we look at this at all, Dave's chosen that because he knew Dan and Nan were going to be here this morning or, you know, he knew Kenton was going to be back or whatever because uh, it's not that way at all, but rather... We just sang a chorus about longing like a deer for water to hear from God. And I hope as we look at God's word this morning that we will be able to affirm and perhaps learn some new things and be reminded of some new things of what it means to be the church and how we relate as a church. Whenever we talk about church life or about any type of relationship, if you're talking about marriage or family or work situations, immediately our minds go to the exceptions, and there always are exceptional situations. But I find in general, in my experience, that at least 75%, if not 90% of my situation is not exceptional. Okay? Okay? It's not exceptional. We are all influenced by our human nature, and we are all influenced more by what is comfortable than what is necessarily right. And so this morning, I hope as we look at, you can open your Bible to Acts 15. Uh, that's where we're going to be this morning. I hope this morning that Part of what we look at this morning may be something that God can use in your life in the future to help you faithfully follow Him. Because ultimately, that is what all of us need to want. And I think we would say that in our heads this morning. I really want God's Spirit to lead me. We talked earlier this year about this year being... A year where we could have the greatest growth spiritually. And one of those requirements will be for you and I to grow in what it means to let Jesus be Lord. Right? Let Him be Lord. And so often there are a lot of areas where we want Him to be Lord, but there are some areas that we say, but now this area, I want to make the decision. And then I will ask him to bless me in that. And I think when it comes to being part of a church, that is an area that many of us as believers, we struggle in the issue of lordship. You see, once we decide where we want to be a member of a church, then we ask God to bless us in that setting. But we want to make that decision. We want to make that decision. And the criteria often is comfort. It's where I'm comfortable. 
And I don't find in Scripture many times that God called people to places of comfort. Right? Some of us are idealists. We normally think about people and relationships in the best case scenario. And uh, when you're a person who is an idealist, uh, you know it never works out. <laughs> You, you always are used to disappointment because a situation or relationship or a friendship or whatever never quite reaches that pinnacle that you had envisioned it would. Now, for those of us who are realists, we think that's a dumb way to think. I mean, uh, duh, you know, why do you always set yourself up for disappointment? But it's easy for you and I this morning as believers to have an idealistic view of church. We look at church in the New Testament, especially the book of Acts, and I'm sure you're familiar with the first 14 chapters before we're looking at chapter 15, and we see a church that shook its world. And can you imagine what it would have been like if you could have been a part of that first church? We would say, wow, wouldn't that have been exciting to be part of that congregation? I mean, every single thing seemed to have gone right from Pentecost on, right? Large numbers and programs and miracles and, and happenings and sending missionaries out. And my goodness, they were shaking the world. Everything seemed to have gone right. Wait a minute. Don't believe that for one moment. The New Testament church had some really tough moments. And I believe it's impressive that the Holy Spirit did not shield us from that. We actually see some of the grimy details as he inspired the New Testament writers. You know, sometimes Scripture shows us people at their worst. So listen to me this morning. When you are part of a church, there are times when you are going to see sin. When people are going to disappoint you, when people are going to fail you. And we need to come to the realization this morning that whenever two or more people are in a relationship with one another, whether it's a marriage, whether it's family, friendship, church, work relationship, neighbors, business partners, there is always that opportunity for relationships to get messy. And when people get together, sooner or later, no matter how, how idealistic this marriage or this friendship or this church was going to be, at some point our idealism is going to get blasted with a dose of reality. And why is that? That is so true because all of us are innately selfish people. And that reality alone can create messiness to dictate our state of affairs. Well, let's move to our biblical text this morning. Uh, I'm going to take time to read these first 31 verses. And this chapter, I believe, contains one of the most important stories that we find in the entire New Testament. Because if things had not gone right here, all the events of the first 14 chapters could have been but, but history of what could have been. 
the church was at a crisis right here. And I want you to watch as I read through it, and I want to go back and identify some things that were key to the church surviving what happened. Acts 15. And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now when therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other men should go up to Jerusalem under the apostles and elders about this question. And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenice and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles. And they caused great joy unto all the brethren. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees, which believed, saying, that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider of this matter. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. Then all the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name, and to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written, After this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which is fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles, upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Wherefore, my sentence is that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols, and from fornication, and from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, surnamed Barsabas, and Silas, chief men among the brethren. And they wrote letters by them after this manner, 
the apostles and elders and brethren send greeting unto the brethren which are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. For as much as we have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying ye must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good unto us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have sent therefore Judas and Silas, who shall also tell you the same things by mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that ye abstain from meats offered to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication, from which if ye keep yourselves ye shall do well, fare ye well." So when they were dismissed, they came to Antioch. And when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the epistle, which when they had read, they rejoiced for the consolation. Well, if you glance back to chapter 14, verse 26, there's a verse there that I don't want us to miss. Referring to Paul and Barnabas, it says, And thence they sailed to Antioch, from whence they had been recommended to the grace of God for the work which they fulfilled. Paul and Barnabas had been sent out in chapter 13 from this first missionary journey, and they have returned now to Antioch, and it says they completed or fulfilled the work. And that was not an easy missionary journey. In fact, if you recall, Paul on that journey was stoned and left for dead. They faced tremendous challenges and opposition. They faced vicious slander, yet they completed that assignment and they returned to Antioch. And what must have been like to come back home when you've been away? Back to familiar friends and family and culture and church and to have the message that Gentiles were turning to God and were receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. The church at Antioch, which was not only Gentiles, a large contingent of Jewish believers there, they rejoiced. It produced such excitement among them. And maybe you can recall sometime in your faith pilgrimage when you have been someplace, been in a situation where you very clearly could feel the Spirit of God and you were seeing lives changed. It's like you're riding the wave. But notice when we get to chapter 15, the mood changes. What's it been like for you sometime when what you viewed as a blessing, what you viewed as wonderful, all of a sudden, some other believer looks at it differently? What you saw as an obvious blessing of the Lord or opportunity for service, they cut in a different direction and somehow they dulled the whole thing. They throw a wet blanket on it. That's what happened in Antioch. In the middle of all this enthusiasm, we have believers from Jerusalem traveling 200 miles because they're concerned about what they are hearing that has happened in Antioch. So, what is the conflict? These believers who are of the Pharisees, 
And we've talked last year about the Pharisees. But these are Pharisees who chose to believe. And yet you have to understand that they are carrying the weight of thousands of years of tradition. Thousands of years of tradition. And they, it's hard enough for them to imagine that Jewish people, I mean Gentile people can be saved. But if indeed they are going to be part of this new household of faith, surely they must come into this household of faith the same way that they did. That can be a stumbling block for us. We all know what our personal experience in coming to Christ was. And if we're not careful, we can say, well, if you're going to be a faithful follower, you have to come that same path. They were recipients of thousands of years of the covenant with Abraham. The covenant that God made with Abraham and for his descendants. And one of the marks that was required of that was circumcision. That was the bond. That, that, that was a, a personal, daily reminder to every Jewish male that I am set aside. Now today we don't feel as comfortable talking about circumcision, but in that day they talked about it regularly, freely. It, it was a very important rite. And for these Jewish believers from Jerusalem to somehow fathom that anybody could be part of a covenant relationship with God without being circumcised was unheard of. Now, before we get too hard on them, let's cut them some slack. These were genuine believers. These were believers who cared about truth. They cared about the purity of the church. But they were wrong. You see, there was a new covenant, and that's what they didn't understand. And in the new covenant that Jesus instituted, the covenant is in his blood. It's not about circumcision. And that's where they were mistaken. So, it was a no-brainer to these men. If Gentile believers were going to become part of the church, they had to be circumcised and they had to follow the law of Moses. Now, it's easy for us to jump to the conclusion that this is ridiculous. Because, see, we've come from 20 centuries of New Testament teaching that they did not have. And while their point of view may appear ridiculous to us, it certainly didn't look ridiculous to them. And they were so concerned, they traveled 200 miles. Now, today, what's 200 miles, right? You jump in a car, three and a half, four hours, you're there. But it wasn't that way for them. They put a lot of effort in for that reason. So this is an important learning experience for any of us. When we encounter someone who is resistant to change, we need to be reminded that there are people who seriously believe what they advocate. And before we turn away from them in disrespect, and dishonor and disdain, we need to seek to understand where are they coming from? Why do they understand Scripture the way they understand it? Remember, the why 
is always more important than the what. So these brothers from Jerusalem are come with good intentions, but even so, they really come and throw a wet blanket on what the church at Antioch is rejoicing about. And notice verse 2, when Paul and Barnabas get wind of this, they have a large dispute and debate with them. Now, this isn't kind language that Luke uses here. And don't launder these words this morning and somehow think that they just had some quiet, polite little discussion or conversation. These people in verse 2 were upset with one another. No, the King James says, no small dissension. What does that mean? There was a large dissension, okay? And disputation, debate. What can we learn from this situation? Why am I calling our attention to something that happened 1,900 years ago? I think we can learn much by examining how the church resolved this conflict. A couple things. First of all, they were wise enough to discern when they needed help and where to go to get help. You see, what we would do today, the church of Antioch would have said, well, you all just go back to Jerusalem. We don't need to relate to y'all anymore. We're going to do our own thing. That's what we're going to do. That's what normally happens in Western society today. You see, we're so acculturated that we customize everything. We customize our houses, don't we? We customize our cars when we order them. We customize our churches. That's what they would have done. But they recognized this is big, too big for us. We are not getting anywhere with this. This is dividing us. This is breaking us apart. We need to seek to understand not who is right, but what is right. And that is a huge step for you and me in church conflict. Are we more concerned with what is right than who is right? And if we are, there are times we're going to have to look beyond my viewpoint and your viewpoint to find truth. We're going to have to. So they have a delegation consists of Paul and Barnabas, not just Paul and Barnabas, they're on one side, right? And others, and I'm sure the others represented the other side, were sent to Jerusalem to speak with the apostles and elders about this question. You see, this goal was not to win an argument. And if we only could get that in our heads when there is conflict in church, it's not about who wins the argument. It's what can we hear God speaking into this situation? Do we want to know if we are wrong? And so many of us, if we honestly ask that question, we really don't want to know if we're wrong. We want to explain to you why you're wrong. Unless we can come to an issue, honestly, if I am wrong, show me, Father. We have no hope of resolving conflict. Unless we can come to that point, each person is going to go their own way. It's just what's going to happen. 
You see, the goal was not to win the argument. The goal was to determine truth as the Holy Spirit would reveal it through godly leaders. How does God reveal truth today? Through His Word and through His leaders. Through our hearts. So this delegation led by Paul and Barnabas was received by the church in Jerusalem. And they were able to report all the things that they had done. And the church at Jerusalem, there were believers there that rejoiced. But, verse 5, some of the believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees, who believed, stood up and reiterated the argument that, wait a minute, I mean, we're, we're trying to understand how Gentile people can become part of the church. I mean, that's a big change, but surely they have to come the way we came. You see, in other words, if people from outside our genealogical heritage are going to join the church, they're going to have to follow exactly the way we did it. Now, may I remind all of us this morning that in situations like this where it is so apparent to our understanding that someone is wrong, that is not a time to disrespect a fellow believer. These were God-fearing people who were speaking out of a tradition that was hundreds and hundreds of years old. Well, verse 5, the meeting begins. And if this meeting had not gone well, it could well have divided, paralyzed, and neutralized the movement of the early Christian followers. And perhaps the church, as we have known it through the centuries, would not have happened. I think this church meeting perhaps was more significant than the Lutheran Reformation. This situation paints a picture of how Christians can get crossways with each other in this shoot. Have a disagreement and still handle it well. And we all know, if you know church history, Know of situations through the church when Christians have mishandled their differences and generations have paid a terrible price for that. But look how this story unfolds in verse 6. As Luke records, there must have been many passionate speeches. I don't know how long this went. This wasn't an afternoon meeting. This apparently went for days. And I don't know how many people spoke, but Luke just records... Three parts, snippets of three different people that spoke. So we notice that Peter, the first speech that we find that Luke references is uh, from Simon Peter. Uh, are you surprised that Peter would be one of the first to, to speak? I mean, someone's got to address this, right? Why not Peter? So verse 7 to 11, Peter alludes to the fact, reminds everybody that he was the one that God chose first. Speak to the Gentiles. And who is he talking about? Who did he lead to Christ? Cornelius, right? Remember? The centurion, remember the sheet coming down, the vision? And Peter reminds them that that whole household received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter, at that point learned and accepted what every Jewish Christian was struggling to get used to, that Gentiles could be saved. 
as well as Jews. And this was not an easy speech for Peter to make. Because if you look in Galatians, Paul called him out in front of the church. Because in Galatia, Peter was eating and fellowshipping with Gentile believers until some Jewish believers came, and then he withdrew from the Gentiles. And Paul said, I, 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 Peter. And Peter said, you're right. You're right. That's not right. Can we do that when we're wrong? Peter did. Peter did. You see, no matter how ridiculous it sounds to us today, this Jew and Gentile thing, this was serious for first century Jews. The basic point Peter makes is this. I saw with my own eyes the work of the Holy Spirit. See, that gives credibility to Peter's argument. It's not, this is the way I see it. No, Peter says, I saw what God did. When you and I can point to what God is doing, now we're getting toward truth. When you and I can point to what the Word says, now we're getting to truth. Not, well, this is what I'm always comfortable with. This is what I've always understood. This is the way I was raised. This is my background. Those may be valuable, but they don't necessarily point to truth. Peter says, I saw with my own eyes what God did in Cornelius' family. And therefore, what I am calling us to do is, we should not put something extra on people that aren't Jews. There should not be a penalty you have to pay because you're not Jewish. You shouldn't have to pay something extra to come to Christ because you're not Jew. Now, if you're Jew, you, you, you got to, but if you're not Jew, then you, you got to pay it something extra. That's what he's saying here. He said, verse 10, why tempt we God to put a yoke on the neck of Gentiles? which neither our fathers nor we were able to carry. We couldn't do it perfectly. Why should we put that on them? Well, when Peter finishes, verse 12, the whole assembly became silent. What's that mean? So many times, we don't know how to get silent. The whole time someone is making their explanation, what are we doing? We're already formulating our response, right? You see, we really are revealing we're more about wanting to be right or be to win than we are necessarily to be correct. The first thing I said is they recognized when they needed help and they knew where to go to get it. And here I think is another clue for, for how they were successful with this. They listened. They took time to meditate and really think about what Peter shared. You see, this isn't just Peter's idea. This is what God did through Peter. And so they were silent. And then after a period of time, they gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, who likewise didn't just say, well, this is what we think. They shared what God did. What the Holy Spirit did. And then again in verse 13, what did they do? They got silent. 
I don't know how long these periods of silence were. Maybe they said, we're going to adjourn until tomorrow. You all think and pray. But said they held their peace. That's hard for, that's a heavy thing for some of us to hold sometime, isn't it? <laughs> hold our peace. Then James. Who is James? This is the brother of Christ. Not really identified before as a, as a leader. James then declares, says, wait a minute. Let me just, let's, let's think this thing through. Peter just told what God did. Barnabas and Paul just told what God did. Now, I want to take you back to the scripture to what Amos says. And James shares how Amos prophesied, verse 17, that all the Gentiles would be included and that God would make a place for the Gentiles. Wow, that is huge. That is huge for someone like James to mention. That's a tremendous phrase for James to say that Amos prophesied that God would make a people for himself. For a Jew to say that about Gentiles is amazing. Because that phrase, a people for himself, had always in the Old Testament been reserved for the Jews. except in prophecy. Well, you might be thinking, what can we conceive and get from that? What implication? I see a lot of implications we can get from that. I see racial implications we can get from that. I see cultural implications we can get from that. I see age implications we can get from that. I see value of women implications we can get from that. You see, this is what James saw clearly. James continues, the words of the prophets are in agreement with this. One of the keys when we identify truth is, does the word come into agreement? If the word doesn't come into agreement with it, we can question whether that really is the Spirit speaking. We can question the validity of a person's own experience if the word doesn't come into agreement with it. Now, I find it interesting in verse 19, and that's going to bother some of us who are parliamentarians. It's going to bother us a bit. James, didn't, James says, it is my judgment. James did not say, let's vote on it. He did not follow the polity of his day, the politics at which many churches do their work. In fact, I can't document this. But I really wonder if they had voted that day if James's solution would have passed. I don't know if it would have passed or not. His motion might have failed. I believe there were a significant number, probably a sizable majority, who would have voted against accepting Gentile believers. Yet God used a leader. James said, it is my judgment, and he pronounced one of the most serious theological conclusions that the church has known in 2,000 years of history. Basically this. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. That's basically what James was saying. 
There's not one level that the Jews come and one level that this culture comes and one level that the Gentiles come. When we come to the cross, the ground is level. That is an important, an important, serious theological conclusion. So what does James propose? Let's put this in writing. That's important. Why is it important to put things in writing? Because it doesn't just communicate today. It communicates tomorrow, and it communicates the next day. It can be referenced back. Let's put this in writing. And so they put a letter together. And to hasten forward, I read what they put in the letter. They acknowledged that there were individuals who came from Jerusalem down. He'd write in this letter to the church of Antioch. We know they came down there, but we did not authorize them. They came down, and they said that Gentiles had to be circumcised. And we are disputing that. We are countermanding that. And he, they quote what happened in that meeting and how Peter had shared what God had done and well. Barnabas and Paul had shared. And verse 25, it's further seemed good to us who were assembled with one aim, with one accord. How many church meetings have you and I been to where people are together in one accord? What's that mean? Why is that in one accord? Why are those three words important? Because not every time when the church comes together are we in one accord. What does that one accord mean? It doesn't mean in harmony of our singing. What does it mean? In one accord. It means with one aim. We want truth. Whether that means I'm right or you're right or neither of us are right, we want truth. And that's what they wanted to put in that letter. We were in one accord. We tried to write this letter and send it with chosen men who will give you personal testimony of our deliberations. Notice they didn't just send Barnabas and Paul. It would be very easy for Barnabas and Paul to come back and say, Oh, you haven't had that big meeting? I hope you set them straight. I hope, I hope you set them straight up there. No. There were others in the group that could give testimony. You see, it seemed good to the Holy Ghost to those participating in this meeting to not intentionally burden non-Jews, not have a penalty of sorts for being a Gentile. Now, notice there were a couple things that they asked in this letter for that time and place to not be offensive to the Jewish believers. Because it says that every Sabbath day throughout Jerusalem, the law of Moses is being read. We're still at a time when we don't have the New Testament. Okay? It's still the Old Testament. So what the priests are reading every Sabbath day is the Old Testament. And so they... It's the law of love is in place here. You Gentile believers do not need to be circumcised, but we would ask of you, do not cause an offense with your Jewish believers by openly saying, well, now we can eat meat that's offered to idols and we can, things that are are strangled and, and, and blood and so forth. Now, we know the apostle Paul later, and Paul carried that letter down, didn't he? Paul writes later in Romans that meat offered to idols is nothing. But if it caused my brother to sin, what? I then sin against the body of Christ, and I will not do that. So we have the things that they mentioned. 
And I find it interesting how those are different than circumcision. Because whether a Gentile believer was circumcised or not was not a visual in your face every time they got together reminder, was it? No. That's a private. That's a personal. But if those Gentile believers were out every time the church got together bringing meat from the marketplace and offered to idols, you see how that could cause offense? Notice the things that they were asked to do. You see, the law of, mo- of love is in motion here. Well, notice, by the way, this letter was not just sent by email. When important things are communicated, especially in a church setting, it needs to be accompanied by a face and a body. You see, it seems so important for the Gentile believers in Antioch to clearly hear the gentleness and the firmness and the conviction and the call to holiness that accompanied that decision. And yet, that is one of the problems with our modern technology. It is so easy for us to not communicate face-to-face, and it becomes so divisive. It is so easy for us just to text a message or to write a letter of resignation and hit send. There. I've done it. It was so important. So much of our communication is nonverbal. It was so important at this time for the church to be united for Faces to accompany a message. The church in Jerusalem made sure that the essence, the core conviction of the gospel was never compromised. There was never a question throughout this debate about the cross of Christ. There was never a question about the call to repentance. There was never a a question about the call to holy living. The church understood that every person, Jew or Gentile, could be powerfully saved by the grace of God, by faith in Christ. You see, this could have been a moment when the gospel message could have gotten real confused and distorted, and the church could have divided or possibly splintered over doctrinal misunderstandings and cleavages. But they also were able to preserve the unity of the the body of Christ. Notice in this crisis, we don't have any record. Anybody walked out. Nobody quit. And I know there were people that left that meeting and went home really upset. Really wondering, how is this going to work for Gentiles to be part of us? You see, whether we're talking about church structure, church ministry to the lost, how we make and spend money, the clothing we buy and wear, the job we do, in our day and time, it seems that everybody demands that we do it his way or her way. And if it's not done my way, I'll walk. 
And we often see it in church today. Do it my way or I walk. And the beauty of this passage is that people who disagreed with one another sharply still preserve the integrity and unity of the body. So I don't want you to think that everybody walked away from that Jerusalem meeting happy. I'm convinced they didn't. Well, we closed with one of the greatest greatest stories of the church in verse 31. The church rejoicing. The church rejoicing. You see, when faithful people see things in different ways, the gospel can remain integral and unity can be preserved. Now, in conclusion, I hope this morning, again, I didn't know who was going to be here. I hope you do not think you heard me say this morning that there are never legitimate reasons to leave a fellowship or membership of a group of believers. I realize that there are times when the Holy Spirit may call you as a believer to leave a covenant relationship with the body. Maybe because of service in another place. Maybe because what is being taught there, you're at a choice of either obeying the church or disobeying your conscience. Conviction the Spirit has led you to. I realize there are times like that. But what I am calling us to consider is that I'm convinced at least 75% of the time and maybe more like 90% of the time, people that leave churches leave for personal reasons. You see, decisions are prompted by a reaction to something, to a personal hurt or disappointment. Someone says something that neither cheers you on or leaves you feeling appreciated, and our response and reaction to our hurt is, I'm going to let them know how bad I'm hurt. I'm going to take an action that boldly tells them I'm hurt. And if church members, I'm convinced, if to leave a church you had to have an exit interview with Jesus Christ, I wonder how many people would leave. But see, you don't. You don't even need to tell people. You sleep. It's called unhooking the trailer. You see, we are often hurting. And when we hurt, we want other people to hurt. And we feel more sorry for our personal pain than we do for any pain that we might cause others if we leave. We react So many times in the spur of the moment, off the top of our head, from the pit of our stomach, and none of those are safe places to make a radical decision. Often in times like this, time can be our ally. You see, in subsequent days, weekends, months, or maybe years, God will confirm in our hearts His perfect will. And when God's Spirit speaks to you, you need to listen. And at times that is to leave. But far more times it's to stay. Never exhibit anger, frustration, dishonor, or disdain toward a fellow disciple when you're hurting. Seek to understand the why they are committed to a position. Whether the what you appreciate or not. 
Be willing to cheerfully suffer ill will, being ignored or taken advantage of. Don't think for a minute when Jesus said, if you are my disciples, you will face persecution, that he was only talking about from unbelievers. Love what God loves. Love the church as an act of worship to God. Don't become fixated on the question of what can this church do for me or my family? Rather ask, what can I do? What can I and my family provide for this church? You see, once again, this is an area that our Christian life, many believers struggle with. We want to choose a church that makes us feel good. It's comfortable for us. It's like going to the baseball coach and saying, I want to pick where I'm going to play. Right? No, the coach tells you where you're going to play. Let me close with this. Some years ago, some of, how many of you all know of John Bevere? Name ring a bell? We did a video study here. You remember on offense? So you remember? I don't know if you remember one of the last things he shared. He shared he and his wife's testimony. They were in a church, very active in a church, and there became an issue with the leadership of that church. He, I don't remember what the issue was. But it became personal. And he and his wife thought it would be more comfortable. Does that sound familiar? They knew of a friend of theirs who was starting a new church plant. And it was so exciting. And it would be much more comfortable for them to go join this new church plant than to try to work with this conflict. More comfortable. So he said, we did. We went, we left, and we went to this church plant, and initially it was great, but the longer we were there, there wasn't a problem, but we just didn't feel like we were, this was where we were to be. And he said, eventually, I think it was after a year and a half, two years, he and his wife decided, you know, we're going to go back and visit our old church. And he said, we walked in that old church, and it just felt like. And he said, I couldn't figure this out. And I prayed about it, and I felt the Holy Spirit very clearly said to me, I never asked you to leave. You did that. That's why this feels like home. This is where you're supposed to be. But you left. I hope we can understand this morning how important it is to follow God's Spirit and not allow decisions and conflicts with church to be dictated by our emotions and our comfort. And I'm not suggesting at all that it always is, but I'm convinced that the great majority of times that's what happens. We don't want to put forth the effort to be the church with one another, to see Christ in one another, to be Christ to one another. It's just so much easier just to walk away. So, we're a young congregation. 
relatively speaking here, Cluster Springs at least, we have a lot of diversity. We have a lot of things to continue to work out together. And I've said this before. I'll close with this to some people that have left our, our fellowship here. If you tell me that the Holy Spirit is leading you to leave our church, I don't care who you are in the congregation or how important you are in our congregation. I have to be okay with that. Amen? I'm not the head of this church. As much as I'll miss you, as much as we may need you, as much as I think we can't go on without you, if the Spirit is calling you to go somewhere else, you go with my blessing. But if you're leaving, and I had someone tell me this, I asked, and they said, no, I can't say that the Holy Spirit, I can't say that God is, asked, is leading us from this church. Then I said, I got a problem. I got a problem with that. That means some other voice you're yielding to. So my encouragement to us this morning, Acts 15 shows us it can happen. It can be done. We can be the church of one another. And let's commit ourselves to do that. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we acknowledge that we're human. We're not fully sanctified, and we fail one another so many times. And Father, we, we bring to church and to the Scripture so much of our past and our experience, and we pray, Father, that your Spirit will continue to illuminate us and give us an understanding of truth. Help us to be Christ to one another to be loving, to be caring, to be more interested in truth than being right in an argument. Father, may your spirit bless this congregation as we commit ourselves to faith we follow in you. In Christ's name we pray.